Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. What I want to do just to start out is walk us through some of the first chapters here, um, really just some key passages. Um, this whole thing begins with an effort on Lacan's part to really break down psychoanalysis, not just Lacanian psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis broadly. For this is for a lay audience, to be honest, this is the, the widest, least specialized audience that I think Lacan had ever spoken to up to this point. He's really trying to get down to brass tacks in this seminar, which is why it's such a foundational text and why I'm so delighted to be here talking it through with y'all. So let's start at the beginning, pages seven through 11. If you've got the text, grab it, open it up, and you'll see what we're up against here. The question on pages seven to 11 is, is psychoanalysis a science? And if so, what kind of science is this thing? The answer is simple, but it might take us a little while to excavate that. Psychoanalysis is a science, but not of the normal scientific sort. You see this passage on page seven, where Lacan says, quoting Picasso, I do not seek, I find. There are searchers and there are finders. It's right in the middle of page seven. I do not seek, I find. Modern science is a big gaggle of seekers. Psychoanalysis, ah, they do not seek, they find. And let's see what that's about. Modern science, the gaggle of seekers. One of the things that they seek fundamentally, according to Lacan, is objectivity. And by that, I mean a world of stuff, of objects, things, entities, the quiddities of the world. Modern science is fundamentally concerned with stuff with objects, with things. Its basic modality is objectivity. And then what you see at the bottom of seven, top of eight, is this turn towards hermeneutics, which is an example of the human sciences that Lacan brings forward here. Hermeneutics is also a seeker enterprise. It is searching for ever new and never exhausted meanings of this stuff that modern science is so obsessed with. If modern science is concerned with stuff, objectivity, psychoanalysis is not concerned with objectivity, but with what Lacan calls object 
objectality, which is not about objects, but instead about openings. And that's really important here. The science of psychoanalysis is a science of openings, not objects. It's not concerned with the stuff of the world. It's concerned with the conditions of possibility for anything like a piece of stuff, a thing to emerge. In order for there to be a thing for science to study, there have to be some preconditions in place to allow that thing to emerge as a singular, distinct, identifiable thing. In order for me to say, everybody, check out this pen, what I have to do is work it in such a way, linguistically speaking, that this pen is able to pop into the foreground and then have all of this back and side ground material appear as not pen as distinct from it. Psychoanalysis is more concerned with that process of thingification, identification, than it is with the thing itself, with the identity itself. And we're gonna talk about that. And when I say it is a science, I mean that it is a science in which this condition for things is not sought, but found. And that's where it's gonna become interesting for us. That Lacan would start with this passage. I do not seek, I find. He's basically throwing down the gauntlet and saying, listen, yeah, we're a science over here, but we're not searchers. We find things. What that is that psychoanalysis finds is our first point of inquiry now. So science is about objectivity. Psychoanalysis is about objectality. Science is about objects. Psychoanalysis is about openings. Now let's see if we can figure out what that means. First, one more word. If psychoanalysis has an object of inquiry, an object of study, if you will, it is a study of causes, of causality. Psychoanalysis is a about the study of the causes for the existence of things, if we wanna compare it to modern science. It's about a lot more than that, but if we're just working it at the level of science, it's a study of the causes behind, underlying. That's why I say conditions of possibility for the stuff that scientists try and study, whether it's a dog, a rock, a pen, an astrophysical phenomenon, a disease, a bacterium, whatever it might be. Psychoanalysis is interested in what allows that particular entity to become an object. This is pretty abstract so far. We're trying to talk it at the level of science. There is, however, one cause in particular that interests the psychoanalyst in the Lacanian tradition. It is the cause of human desire. 
You see, everybody on this call right now, and there are plenty of us, each of us could take a minute and tell the group something that they want. Everybody here knows some shit that they want. And it is always shit. It's just shit that you want, for sure. I asked my brother once, I said, bro, what do you want for your birthday? He got out his wallet and he took out a piece of paper that he keeps in his wallet and it had a list of shit on it. It was a list of shit that he knew he wanted. He had already just, any other time he thought of one, he just wrote another one down. And then he went down the list too. And I could tell he was eyeing me too. Like, man, this fool is going to spend like $7 on me. Do I have anything in here that's like for $7? He's like passing by the TV. He's going past like the new dog. He's got all his other shit. He's like, oh yeah, I'd just like some beer. That'd be great. Thanks. Now I forget what he asked for, but by God, if he didn't have a list, everybody knows what they want. The object of desire is clear always. Here's the thing though. What Lacan helps us figure out is that we don't know the answer to the question of why we desire. We spend so much time thinking about what we want that we forgot to ask the basic question of why. Why do I want this thing? Thankfully, Lacan is very straightforward when it comes to this stuff. The answer to the question of why I want something is simple, because I don't have it. You technically cannot want something that you experience as having, which is partly how when you finally get what you say you want, you suddenly don't want it anymore. That shirt that used to get you up in the morning and get you so excited, like, I mean, you might even have a party scheduled just so that you built a whole party just so you could wear that new shirt. You're like, man, I'm going to save that shirt. I'm going to have all my friends over and I'm wearing that shirt. Today's the day when I'm going to wear that shirt. My whole world's going to be revolving around the wearing of that shirt. That is the same shirt that, like so many of its kind, is now rotting away in your closet until you decide to give that piece of shit away. It was great when you first got it, but after you've had it for a while and you've worn it a few times, you suddenly start to think, ah, it's not as great as I wanted it to be. Ah, it's not the same. I've got a new shirt I want. And you throw that all the wrong way. That's the thing about desire. The object of desire is no longer desirable once we get it. Which is how in relationships, you can oftentimes rekindle someone's desire by saying some shit like, you don't even know how good you have it. You just wait until I'm gone. When I'm gone, then we'll see. Wait until I'm not here. Then we'll see how much you desire me. It's not until you make yourself scarce that the other person rekindles their desire for you. Now, the bumper sticker for this we know is very simple. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Lack, scarcity is the cause of desire. And that's the answer to the question, why? Why do we want something? Because we lack it. Now, lack for Lacan is not the same as just missing. So for instance, I lack horns. I don't have any horns growing out of my head. But it's not the same thing as experiencing them as lacking. You see, I don't have horns, but I don't wake up each day wishing I did. Lack is an experience. There are many things that you don't have. 
but there are only certain things that you experience as lacking in your life. This is the basic function of modern advertising, of course, right? You didn't know you needed a new iPhone in that dark green gem color with the 18th camera on the front until you saw that billboard as you were getting off the interstate. The job of the advertiser is to manufacture the experience of lack. That's what advertising does. So just because you lack something doesn't mean that it's the cause of your desire. It's the experience of lack when you feel like something's missing that you get going. This is what psychoanalysis studies. It doesn't just study lack, it studies the human experience of lack, which in psychoanalysis is the object cause of desire. It is a study of lack as the cause of this human experience that we all endure, thank goodness, called desire. So psychoanalysis is a science of objectality that studies causes, openings, gaps, lacks, with the full view of trying to understand the cause and of course the effects of human desire. Now, let's see if we can tease this out a little bit. You heard me talk momentarily about foreground, background. Let me see if we can break this down a little bit. Again, with the view of modern science in hand here. In order for something to count as a single identifiable entity, like a pen, as a one, something for a scientist to study, for instance. It has to be distinguished from a background and a side ground of things it ain't. You see? This is what we know about language. We learned this from the great literary critic, Kenneth Burke. Language use is always a reflection of reality, but also a selection from that reality. And then selecting certain parts of that reality to be featured by way of language, also a deflection of other parts of that reality that are now passed into the background in order for one entity to appear in the foreground. So when I say, y'all, check out my fly pen, it's fabulous. It's a G2. I love it. It's just amazing. I don't know why I had to say it in that voice. That was the voice that had to be said. And I thought, you know, this is a G2 voice. My G2 voice, what can I say? When I say check out this pen, what I am implicitly also saying is don't look at the plants behind me. Don't look at the frame that's turned to the side right here and wonder if indeed it is a picture of me with my grandmother. Don't ask. Don't ask. Don't look at my shirt and wonder if Fool's Gold is the best surfboard maker in a North, uh, Northern California or not. Don't ask what is on the back of my shirt that might tell you a little bit more about Fool's Gold as a surfboard maker and ding repair shop. Don't ask, focus on the pen. When I say check out this pen, it creates two fields of experience. 
a phenomenal field in which the pen appears and an equally phenomenal world in which everything else is obscured, set in the background. What you have here now is a differential relationship between the pen that is here and the plant that is there. This one and all of this other stuff that is not it. So you have two elements that have to be in motion, in play for us to single out one of them. This is the first lesson. In order to count to one, you first have to know how to count to two. That differential relationship between this and that, here and there, is the very same thing that linguists in the 20th century taught us about language. Language is a differential system in which the meaning of one word only exists in a differential relation to another word. So if I grab a dictionary and I look up the word pen, you can imagine what I'm gonna find, a writing utensil in which ink is squirted, it, no, probably ejaculated onto the page by a hand that presses, you see I'm going with this, right? But check it out. Listen to all these other words that come up when I say pen. I look up pen, I gotta now know what writing is. I gotta learn about paper. I, and each of those words, writing, paper, pen, press, ejaculation. I now have to look up those words in the dictionary. And guess what? When I look up ejaculation in the dictionary, now I've got a whole other string of words, each of which is different from the word I just looked up, but necessary for me to understand its meaning. In order to understand the meaning of the word pen, the dictionary tells me I also have to understand the meaning of all these other words that are not pen, but nevertheless are integral to its meaning. And I would hard press you to find a single word that would not produce this same differential effect. In order for there to be the meaning of one word, that word has to exist in a differential relation connected to, but only by being distinguished from all these other words. That is what happens when I ask you to look at this pen. It creates a differential relation between the foreground in which this pen has been called attention, attended to and the background of all this other stuff that I'm encouraging you to allow to slip into oblivion as best you can. Background and foreground. Two elements in order to get one. But don't be fooled here. True Lacanians never stop by counting to two. Now, I'm not a true Lacanian, so I can stop whenever the hell I want. But if you want to take this thought to the next level, let's talk about how there is a third element here. There's a foreground. There is a background. And now, wait for it. This is the big part. This is the one we want from Lacan. So small, it's huge. There is the minimum irreducible distance or difference, if you will, between these two entities, 
that allows them to remain distinct. If you're just like, fuck it, I'm not going to write down any of this. I've only got one little sheet of paper. I'm not going to write. This might be the one to write down. This third element is the minimum irreducible distance or difference between background and foreground or any two entities that allows them to remain distinct. And I put it like that very carefully, irreducible, because if you were to remove that third element, that difference or gap or split or division or cesura between the two entities, you would no longer have two entities. They would then become one. So if I said, look at the pen, but I held up a pen, that was the exact same color as the wall behind me, that minimum irreducible distance and difference between these entities would have been obscured. And you would no longer see two entities, a background and a foreground. You would just see one. That's why one of the basic key definitions of abjection, for those of you that read the great post-Lacanian Julia Kristeva, is anything that appears in this liminal zone between two entities. So an abject element in the human face, for instance, is that piece of food that gets caught in your teeth that calls attention to the fact that you have an inside accessed by way of your mouth and an outside where other people can look at your mouth and see that there's some nasty shit happening in there. It's the little piece of spittle that pops out of your mouth while you're talking to somebody. And suddenly that's all you can focus on. Or if you're interested in the gaze, don't forget this. Notice what happens whenever you're talking with somebody and you notice they've got some food in their teeth. You immediately start tripping because you're like, God damn, maybe I got some food in my teeth. If I got food in my teeth, oh shit, man. I mean, they, that happens to them. It could be happening to me. And you'll do stuff. You'll be like, you're smiling, kind of keeping your lips down. Yes, well, that's very interesting. Thank you. To the point that it might even trigger for them a kind of awareness. That might be the way that you tell them they got some shit in there. I mean, it could also be you just staring at it. You're just that person. Someone's talking to you, they got some food in their teeth and you're just staring at the piece of food. Here's the deal though. That little piece of food is the gaze. It might be watching you. It might not be watching you. But by God, if it's not a position in the world where you are acutely aware of the possibility of being seen. This is also the stain or the piece of food that pops out of your mouth while you're flossing your teeth at night. You're flossing in front of the mirror. And you know what I'm talking about? That piece of corn or whatever that pops out and sticks to the mirror. And suddenly you're just completely disgusted. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? That shit was in your mouth two seconds ago, and now it's out of your mouth, and now you're grossed out? Come on. That stain or smudge on the mirror is what disrupts the mirror's ability to present you as a specular image, whole, coherent, beautiful if you're lucky. You feel me? As soon as that little piece of food pops out and hits the mirror, that mirror has been stained. It can no longer perform its gestalt function 
of presenting you with a whole coherent image of yourself because now there's a crack or a rupture or a smudge in the mirror. That smudge is also the cause of your desire. We'll talk about that in a little while. Right now though, the important thing is that in order to count to one, you now have to know how to count to three. There's the foregrounded entity that requires a backgrounded field to exist. And then there is the differential relation between the two. The gap that cannot be reduced if these two are to remain distinct. That third element, that opening between the two entities, pen and plant in the example, here's the pen, there's the plant. The minimum irreducible difference between these two entities that allows them to remain distinct is a place where pen is lacking and plant is lacking. That opening necessary for these two entities to remain distinct is unoccupied by either of them. It is distinct from them. This third element, this liminal zone is distinct from them. And because both of these entities are lacking, because that is an empty space, you can think of it as a gap, as a cut, as a rip, as a slit, as an opening. In psychoanalysis, the word for this third element is objea. If you're looking for a definition of this famous little a that Lacan insists Derrida stole from him, Hey, man, you stole my little A. Hey, give me back my little A, mother. Here it is. The object cause of desire, objea, famously described and introduced in our previous seminar, Seminar 10, is the minimum irreducible distance between any two entities that allows them to remain distinct. It's the minimum irreducible distance between any two entities that allows them to remain distinct. And it has to be there. This is why if you really read Lacan, and I think Badiou is right about this, one of the most, one of the trickiest concepts in Lacan is the concept of the one, the un. Now you'll note he's messing with this early on in the seminar. I'm not just making this shit up. This is straight out of the book. This unbegriff that he's messing with, this unconcept, this non-concept, even the translator can't help but put a note in there on page 26, bottom of the page, where Lacan introduces this unbegriff, German for non-concept, and notes that it is but the concept of lack. It's the very first footnote in the whole text. Translators got to weigh in on this. Lacan is playing on the French un, one, and the German negative prefix un, moving from oneness to negation. Part of the reason why the one is so complicated, a topic for Lacan, is because there are always at least three for every one. Now, the great question, if you really want to push it, 
What does it mean for a Lacanian to count to four? We just started. I'm not going to answer that question yet. Let's see if we can get there. You got to earn that one. Right now, I think we've got our three entities outlined and ready to go here. That third entity, that minimum irreducible distance, I want to emphasize that in the answer to the question we started with. Is psychoanalysis a science? Yes. What is the object of that scientific inquiry known as psychoanalysis? The object of study in psychoanalysis is the minimum irreducible distance between any two entities that allows one of them to emerge in the phenomenal field of human experience as an object, maybe even an object for modern scientific inquiry. But you'll note, psychoanalysis is not concerned with the pen. Psychoanalysis is not concerned with the plant. Psychoanalysis is concerned with the way language is used to introduce and maintain a gap or a cut, or more technically again, a differential relationship between these two entities. Psychoanalysis as a line of inquiry is a study of differential relationships between entities. In this space of differentiality, we discover lack. And let me be clear, we do not discover lack, we find it. Psychoanalysis does not seek, it finds. And what it finds is lack, the object cause of desire, usually represented by the Lacanian notion of objea. Let's pause there, take some questions. I know they're out there. Before we take this next turn, I just wanna take a moment with what we've had and see what you all think. Anything I can do to help? Yeah, go ahead. Just just go ahead, fire away, I'm listening. Um, I, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, but not to, to just immediately go down a rabbit hole, but what is there not then some sort of distance between objea and either one of the two elements that are that objea is the, the difference between if that you know is there an objea of the objea, I guess? Ah yeah. Um Ooh, that is good. Camden, you got to it. Hell yeah, that's good. That's super good. Um, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I want to tell you about this. I really do want to talk about this because I think that there, there is not an OJA for OJA. Let's answer your first and the easiest part of your question right out of the gate. Um, OJA is the condition of possibility 
for anything like background or foreground. You have to have something like this, a space of lack, in order for those entities to emerge as distinct and to remain distinct. So it's not the same as those entities, but they would not exist, technically speaking, without Objaya. Objaya is their cause, and psychoanalysis is the study of causality. So that's the answer to your first question. The second one is, what's the cause of this cause? And that, I think, is brilliant. I would like to suggest that the lack that is a centerpiece of Lacanian psychoanalysis is in fact comprised of two moments and that Objaya is just one of those moments. Objaya is the experience of lack. It captures the experience of lack, but there is something before it. Where did this lack come from? What was there before this lack? If we can put it in a kind of naive chronological way. Because Lacan does not think chronologically. He thinks logically, which more often than not has him thinking retroactively. Freud as well. Lacan's always going to say he got his retroaction from Freud. I think the best way to answer this question, Camden, is to cut as close to the ontological bone of psychoanalysis as we can. What I would like to offer here in response to this question, what is the object cause of the object cause of desire? That's Camden's brilliant question here. I would like to offer a philosophical anthropology of psychoanalysis. That's what I mean by ontology, by the way. It's a statement of how things are according to Lacanians. Here's how Lacan thinks about it. Before the world of things that we all have access to as language using beings, there was this bizarre space, infantile pre-edipal existence. Lacan talks about it as a kind of here and now of the all in a process of becoming. It's in a Cree. I believe it's in that famous essay, uh, The Manifesto of Psychoanalysis, at least as far as Lacan thought of it in the mid-50s, The Field and Function of Speech and Language and Psychoanalysis. The here and now of the all in the process of becoming. Lizards on rocks, Edenic experience, uteromorphic trimesters, including that important fourth trimester after the human body has been birthed and yet still requires copious amounts of care from others, which is why the first three months of human life are oftentimes referred to as the fourth trimester. This here and now of the all in the process of becoming, like all uteromorphic experiences, you eat when you're hungry, you piss when you need to, you shit where you like. You see, the ancient Greek kinics, Diogenes figured this out. They called them kinics because kinos, when we're talking about in Greek, that means dog. They were the dog philosophers because they lived like animals, according to Socrates. I mean, 
you know, such as it was. Diogenes, if he felt like taking a shit and he was walking in the plaza, he's going to squat down and take a shit because the law of nature trumps the law of humankind. If he and his lady are out walking around, enjoying the fountain and the bright sunshine, and they feel like fucking, Diogenes is going to get after it. Famously, in a passage, Tiffy, that Foucault really liked, Diogenes is laying in a bathtub, a sunning tub, getting a tan, enjoying that Mediterranean heat. And Alexander the Great comes up and says, hey, Mr. Diogenes, I hear you speak truth to power. I hear you're one who just tells it like it is. What do you got to say to me? I'm Alexander the Great. I'm the king of all this shit. And you know what Diogenes said to Alexander the Great in that moment? He said, step aside, you're standing in my light. Now, obviously, kingship associated with sun, authority, and the like, blah, blah, blah. What Diogenes was saying is the sun and its warmth and the law that that pronounces trumps you and your imperial law, your earthbound law if you will. That was an important moment for probably both of them, but almost especially for Alexander the Great. Step aside, you're standing in my light. The cynics early on, not the bad cynics that we now know of, but these old hardcore cynics that were closer to communists and lunatics, these were folks that were intensely embodied. They were always trying to keep with that here and now of the all in the process of becoming, that we as infants, I'm not gonna say we enjoyed it because enjoyment is a technical term here, but we experienced it. We don't have a memory of that, but we know we went through that phase by the sheer fact that we find ourselves here and now. What happens though eventually and this is just developmental stuff. You can find this in any textbook. Lacan is not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Is that something happens in the life of a child. It can be around potty training. Before that, it can be around weaning. After that, it can be around language learning and language acquisition. In each case, the child encounters a prohibition, some part of their lived experience that effectively says to them, no, thou shalt not. The process of weaning is a no. It is a prohibition. It says thou shalt not use your parent as food any longer. The process of potty training is a thou shalt not. Thou shalt not piss and shit wherever you want, whenever you want. There are places and times when you do it and now you're asked to do it that way. The same with language acquisition. You've seen it in the grocery store. The kid is crying and the parent turns to the kid and says, I can't understand you when you're crying. Use your big boy words, use your words. And then the kid says, finally, after they calm down, I just, I just, okay, can I get the cinnamon checks, uh, cereal? 
And the parent says, ah, now you used your big words. Rewards abound. Here come the cinnamon checks. We're going to get three boxes of them. You see how this works, right? This is an experience of prohibition where the here and now of the all in the process of becoming, whether it's piss and shit and food and crying and we and, and all, all this stuff suddenly meets a barrier, a bar, a prohibition. This process in Lacanian psychoanalysis is known as castration. Sometimes you hear it referred to as alienation. The function is always the same though. It is a state of prohibition, an experience of prohibition. This is our first introduction to the name of the father, by the way, which also has two stages, just like the experience of lack that we were just talking about. This is the first stage of the name of the father, which in French, as you know, the word for name and the word for no sound exactly the same. N-O-M sounds exactly the same as N-O-N. The name of the father is first and foremost the no of the father. And that doesn't mean that it's a daddy. This is not some dick swinging person that has to do this. It doesn't even have to be a human who does this. It could be your mom. In fact, usually the name of the father is enunciated by whoever plays the maternal function, edibly speaking in Lacan's terms. This first introduction to the name of the father is as a no of the father. And it is a no that says, welcome to the symbolic. That is the field of law, the field of order, the field of language, normalcy, expectations, and the like. The symbolic is the world that castration inducts the subject of pure need known as the infant into. And if you're neurotic, that means you accepted that prohibition. One of the conditions for psychosis, according to Lacan, and for those of you that follow us on Substack, follow our newsletter, and have been watching the lectures on psychosis, about 30 of them, they're quick, they're brief, but it is a reading of seminar three, the psychoses. You know where I'm going with this. One of the basic conditions for the clinical structure known as psychosis, according to Lacan, is a utter rejection of this prohibitive enunciation by the father, whomever they might be. The neurotic accepts their castration. The psychotic refuses to even acknowledge that a prohibition was uttered. And the pervert, if you want to have the clinical the third basic clinical structure in place, is somewhere in between. They are someone who kind of heard that no and kind of didn't hear it. What happens next then is that the neurotic represses the prohibitions of society. And yet nevertheless, 
lives a life according to them. The psychotic rejects the prohibitions of society and as a result is completely unmoored in the social order. That's why psychotics act the way they do, Lacan would say, because they fundamentally rejected the primordial signifier no that would have inducted them into the symbolic order that would have given their life a sense of meaning. They refused to allow the symbolic to put them in their place. And as a result, they have no place. Think about that the next time you see somebody on the street acting crazy and you know they are homeless. They are homeless because they have no place in language, in the symbolic. Heidegger was right. Language is the house of being. But so is Lacan. What happens when you're homeless vis-a-vis -vis language? The psychotic is fundamentally unmoored from the world of society, of order, of normalcy and the like, because they rejected at some level and for some reason, this no, this prohibition that would have inducted them into a new order, an order of split subjectivity. Because when the neurotic accepts this prohibition against nursing, against pissing and shitting wherever they want, against babbling and crying and expecting to get what they want without words. When they accept that prohibition, what they accept is that they are now torn between two worlds. A world in which the first here and now has now become a then and there. Relative to the new here and now, the here and now of language, of society, of order. This is the split subject. This is that dollar sign looking thing that in Lacanian terms, we use to symbolize the neurotic subject, the split subject, the divided or barred subject. They are fundamentally split between their existence in the grammatical symbolic world of language and order and their embodied experience. The rules of shitting and the fact that you have a turd in your body. My kid once asked me, she said, dad, what is poop? And I said, it's just food that your body isn't hungry for. And I, I don't know if that was a good answer or not, because then she wanted to talk about who eats shit. What kind of food is, what kind of animal for whom is, is shit really good? And it was extra complicated because we have this foster dog that we've had for, and it's no longer a foster dog because we've had her for like 10 years. She's kind of our dog now. She won't leave us alone, but she's a shit eater. And so my kid said, oh, okay, I totally get it now. Yeah, I get it. My poop is Dulcie's food. The dog's name is Dulcie. And so I was like, oh my God. So I had to deprogram that whole thing too. So don't think that just because you read Lacan, you can understand any of this shit. Everybody puts their foot in their mouth and it's the best place for your foot to be because it's precisely on the underside of your foot that you get access to the real. And that's ultimately where we're headed here. It is always in Lacan ultimately where we're headed. For now though, we're dealing with that initial moment of acceptance of a primordial no, a prohibition. Lacan says per usual that he's just getting all this from Freud. Bejahung, B-E-J-A-H-U-N-G is the term 
that Lacan says it's straight out of Freud. This is this, it means affirmation in German. It's an affirmation or acceptance of societal rules and language and, and, and speaking codes that are not of your own making. That's why the key word here is oftentimes alienation. The process we're describing here in developmentally is an alienating process because you are asked to set up shop and mold your existence in a world that is not of your own creation. You didn't make that language. Nobody invented that word, that language to coincide with your birth. The English language that most of us started with was there long before we were born. Your name, the one word in the English language that most intimately reflects you was probably chosen for you before you were born. Hell, it may have even been chosen for you before your parents were born. If you belong to a very traditional naming society where all the names of the generations are determined three, four generations out. Even before your parents were born, your name was predestined. Names are destiny, as my friend John Peters often puts it. This name of the father, this know of the father, it points to a whole world of names and rules and regs that are not of your own creation. So when you accept them, nevertheless, that is an experience well captured with the term alienation. You are now an alien. And what inhabits you as a result, as the symbolic field is introjected and brought inside you, to form this very important Lacanian notion of the ego ideal is an alien inside you. So alienation is a good word for this process known as castration. You can look up all these terms too and come up with definitions along these lines. I'm still answering Camden's question. You know this, right? Don't forget, this is an answer to a question. There is a symbol for this in Lacanian algebra, for this no of the father that functions as prohibition. The symbol of this is actually also, not coincidentally, in the opening pages of seminar 11. Check out page 18, second paragraph. It is also this passage in which Objea pops up. This is the point at which those who heard my seminar last year, so this is seminar 10, anxiety, which we just finished a lecture, lecture series on. If you're curious, holler at me, and we'll make sure that you get a chance to take a look at some key parts of this seminar. You will find a correspondence between the various forms of the Objea and the central symbolic function of the minus phi, and then there's that symbol. Ne parens negative lowercase fee, the minus fee, evoked here by the strange reference, which is certainly no accident, that Aragon confers on the historical connotation, if I may put it this way, of the propagation by his character, the mad poet, Oliver, there's your poet again, of this countersong. What I would like to suggest in answer to Camden's question is that the experience of lack 
that is the cause of human desire and the object of psychoanalytic inquiry is in fact a two-part phenomenon, only one part of which is represented by objea. I'm gonna share my screen now because I wanna draw this as we would in set theory. What we've been talking about so far is this A, this objea. This is very much in many ways, this place of lack. But it's not alone. The human experience of lack presupposes another event, the event that I just described, well represented with this algebraic symbol that you saw on page 18. Parens negative minus phi. What this thing symbolizes is the no at work in the first part of the name of the father. What it symbolizes is prohibition. This is the answer that I would offer Camden to your question. What was there to condition objea? Is there an objea of objea, a lack that tills the soil for this one? And my answer is yes. And it is right here in the Lacanian algebraic term for castration. And the reason why I put these brackets around here is because I want you to think of this as a mathematical set comprised of two elements. So the experience of lack that we humans understand as the cause of desire is itself comprised of these two events. And I like the word event here for these things because what this negative feast really symbolizes is the act of a cut, an incision that occurs. It is every bit an act. Somebody does this to you, to your world. Objea is the opening that results from this cut, this incision. So if you want something graphic, think about having your hand and then here comes the scalpel and it slices down your hand. And what it does in so doing is it opens up a wound. The no of the name of the father is the cut that shows up and says, knock it off, it's over. You can't keep crying like a baby and expect to get what you want. Ogja describes the resulting experience, not of one entity, not of two, but of three. Now, after that prohibition has been issued, we are all now in the position of saying to ourselves, fuck, I was that 
but now I'm this. I used to be in the here and the now of the all in the process of becoming, and now I have to occupy this symbolic field. And you know what? I'm here and I'm there. I'm at once this newly born linguistic being that can use words to ask for things that will meet my needs. But I'm also still this embodied being, this bio-animalistic being that experiences need, material need at the level of being cold or hot or hungry or tired. We are at once linguistic, social beings, and biological embodied beings. These are the two basic elements of split subjectivity in the Lacanian system. But you've heard me say it once, let's go over it again. Wherever there is one, there will be two. And wherever two have gathered, my friends, there is always a third. The minimum irreducible distance that allows those two sides of me to remain distinct. That is the site of lack. It is traditionally captured by this little a, this obja. But what Lacan is telling us on page 18 is that, hey, bro, there's a little bit more to this. And what I'm doing now in answering Camden's great question is saying, here's the other part of that. Now, for those of you that have read earlier Lacan seminars or studied this stuff with me before, you know how we get to this lowercase you know how we arrive at this construction. This is very much a product of Lacan's reinterpretation of the Oedipal Triangle. This is the fourth element that he would introduce to the usual pre-Oedipal Triad. Now, I don't know how far you want to go into that. I'm absolutely happy to take this in that direction. It's another approach at desire. It's another way of understanding what was there before this entity. And there was a before. So I'm going to pause there. That's my question to you. If you want to do that work, I'm here to do it with you. And I do not mind and think it might even be helpful to hear about what it was like before the no of the father here represented by this minus fee shows up and says, knock it the fuck off. And hears us in this moment saying, fuck, I guess I can't do that anymore. Oh my God, what am I gonna do? That's the question. What am I gonna do now? Where do you wanna go from here? Otherwise I'll just put the train back on the tracks and continue as we were talking. What would you say is the difference between like Lacan's counting to three to count one and like Badu's counting of the void? Hmm. Nice try, but no, we will not be answering that question here. Oliver, son of a bitch. You know what? I think we need to actually do a seminar on Badu. 
and actually really do this stuff because where is the void? And where is like the edge of the void? I don't think that this is straight Lacanian stuff that Badu is doing. I think he's coming up with some pretty rad shit of his own. There's the void, then there's the edge of the void. And then there's this field of the count of the state where shit's unfolding. Um, if you want a quick riff on this, um, chapter two of The Chattering Mind, I use Badiou's work there, but incidentally to read Kierkegaard. So Kierkegaard's theory of the public has a void structure built into it. Now, one way that you might figure it in terms of Lacan, if you don't feel like yet another book um, arriving on your desk for you to read, um, is to think about it in terms of set theory. So if you think about a totalizing set, this is a set that would include everything. Think about it like a dictionary that would contain every single word in the English language or a car that's heading out for a camping trip in which one party turns to the other and says, did you get everything packed? Yes, I got everything packed. You packed everything. Are you sure you packed everything? Yes, I packed everything. To which that party could just as easily say, stop the car, turn around. We have to go back. Why would we have to go back? I packed everything. No, no, no. If you packed everything, that means you left nothing behind. We have to go get it. Don't forget, we have to go get nothing. Any totalizing set that claims to contain everything, every animal on the planet, every word in the language, always has to leave a something out that is in fact a nothing relative to that set. In order to have a collection of everything, nothing must be excluded. But here's the thing, and this is something I do believe that Badiou learned from Lacan on this, and Lacan in turn learned from set theorists. That excluded left behind nothing is not exterior to the totalizing set that claims to contain everything. On the contrary, that nothing wanders errantly through the set of everything and is every bit its condition of possibility. Because in order for me to say I have packed everything, and in order for that to be true, I have to have excluded nothing. Nothing has to be left out or placed under erasure, which is why Lacan has this notion of extimacy. It's not intimacy, it's extimacy. It's an exterior surface or entity that is in fact part of the interior. So those of you that are interested in Lacanian topology, you can think of this in terms of the Mobius strip. If you don't know what a Mobius strip is, you can look it up and you can see that if you put an ant on a Mobius strip and it walks that strip, it will eventually wind up on the underside of where it started. So also with Lacan's interest in the torus, which is effectively a donut, like with a hole in the middle. The interior wall of the torus is the very same wall as the exterior of the torus. You see, the surface that gives you the interior of the donut is the same surface because it's 
tubular in effect as the exterior. Those of you that know where feminists took Lacanian thought can think of this as invagination, where you actually have exterior surface being the same as interior surface. Lacan's great for thinking this stuff. Oliver, I think a clue to your question without daring to try and answer it is to think about it in terms of set theory and think about how Lacan counts the nothing. Because for Badiou, the void is something a little different. How it's counted by the state, miscounted, might be another way to ask the question. Um, it makes me think, though, that we, we probably should at some point um, do a weird side uh, project, lectures in Lacan, except what we do is instead we, we take the Badiou approach and we just do a seminar on Badiou. And not where we read everything, but where we maybe just sharpshoot the key passages in being an event and its successors and just see what we can do from a Lacanian point of view, given what we know. And given that we clearly know Lacan is interested, just as Badiou is interested in set theory. That's my best effort to not answer your question, Oliver. Thank you. We've got time for one more. I'm recognizing also y'all that um, it is now officially 7.51. We've got about another hour. And as always, I'll stick around if you have additional questions, stuff like that. Um, but I wanna make sure we get a little five minute break or something so y'all can like, you know, do whatever you do when you do. Not that you couldn't just be doing that right now as well. Um, but let's take another question before we pause for a minute. What else is out there on this topic that we've got so far? We're also taking requests, so. Can you speak more about uh, what you were saying before with what comes before uh, the cat negative fee castration thing? Ooh, I'm so glad you asked. Yes, I'll try and do it quickly, and then we'll and then we'll take a break. Okay, I'm going to save this um, this image um, so that tomorrow morning when you check your inbox, you can see this and be like, "Oh, that's so gross." That's where McCormick was talking about invagination. What a fucking jeez. But then you could focus on this and, and notice that I used um, pink for both colors. All right, I'm gonna trash this one, but it has been saved. Look for it in your inbox tomorrow. And I'm gonna start a new one here. I'll stick with the pink, but what I'm gonna do is make the thickness of this a little lighter if I can. Oh, hold up. First, I gotta move, uh, gotta move some of these, some of us humans out of the way here. All right, so y'all can still see the screen. Let's get a smaller pen here. Okay, so before this negative fee of castration, where were we? Well, first we had this experience of the here and the now. Lacan is messing with this from poetry, the hic et nunc. It means the here and the now of the all in the process of becoming. Um, 
After that, if I was going to delineate this, and this is a real sloppy way to do this, because Lacan, again, doesn't think chronologically. This space of the here and the now of uteromorphic experience, this fourth trimester you heard me talking about, we don't have any memory of this. It is all retrospectively envisioned from the vantage point of language. Okay. So I don't want to suggest that one comes before two here, because in fact, it's only at stages three and four in this, in this um, lineage that you can look back and even have something like the one. Notice how this lines up with what we said earlier too. In order to have a one, you have to at least have a two. And if there's a two, there's a three. The two here is this pre-edible, in Lacan's terms, imaginary experience. And it's usually represented by a triangle. So what you have initially is you have this child, and then you have a maternal FX. Now I say FX to symbolize function. The mother for Lacan is not your biological mom. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. It's a function. It's a subject position that anyone in the child's life can occupy. If you want a better word for this, the mother in Lacan is the primary caregiver. And it can change from time to time. There will be times in your kid's life where you're the primary caregiver and other times when you're not and other times when you're both co-parents or you and the grandma's doing it, whatever. This is whoever is at this particular stage, the child's primary caregiver. What the child wants more than nothing, more than anything, thank you, thank you, I'll be here all night, is for the maternal figure to desire them. Now, what that means in the case of the child is they want care, attention, affection. Desire, first and foremost, is desire for the maternal figure. Now, what the child pretty quickly realizes, though, is that whoever is the maternal figure, they have desires of their own. There are things that the maternal figure desires that are not the child. Here represented by the lowercase fee that is in Lacanian terms called the imaginary object. This is whatever the child imagines the maternal figure to be interested in, in addition to the child. So let's keep it concrete. Here in this ancient iPhone that I possess, that all of my friends just love and hope I never get rid of, this is an imaginary object. If you're hanging out with a little kid and you're staring at this idiotic screen and you smile at it, the kid wonders what's so funny about that screen? What's so special about this? Why does this get your smile and attention, but I don't? What the child realizes is that the mother experiences desires for other things other things. There's a reason why kids grab smartphones and put them in their diapers. It's because they want you to attend to them the same way you attend to your smartphone. Kids don't just like keys because they jingle. 
They like keys and they grab your keys and they hide your keys in the worst when they put your keys in the trash can or the toilet, y'all. They are obsessed with your keys, so to speak, because when they hear that jingle, they know that you're about to leave. The jingle of the keys tells the child that the maternal figure is about to depart, whether it's to go to work, whether it's to go to X or Y, it is to go away from the child. And that is of concern. So what the child decides to do here is identify with this object. That's what happens when the phone goes in the diaper, when the keys are grabbed and the child runs down the hall. That is them identifying with what they initially perceive as a competitor, a competitor for the maternal figure's affection. Now I say this is a pre-edible imaginary triangle that we are drawing here, but I want you to also notice that it is proto-symbolic because the child realizes in order for its desire for the maternal figure to be met, it has to approximate the desire of the maternal figure. And if it does this process right, by grabbing the phone, by grabbing the keys, by approximating the desire of the other, they will get their desire for the other satisfied. Because now the mom is running down the hall trying to get those keys. Now the dad is running down the hall trying to get that phone. In order to get their desire for the other satisfied, the child learns to approximate the desire of another. Now, if you don't think that this is relevant, don't forget about that time in high school, that crush. You know the crush I'm talking about. You knew they were into, oh, I don't know, country music. You didn't like country music, but in order to get your desire for them met, tell me you didn't go out and buy some cowboy boots. You bought those cowboy boots in hopes that by approximating the desire of the other, you might get your desire for the other satisfied by dressing like the cowboy that you imagine them desiring. You hope that you will make yourself desirable to them, thereby getting your desire for that person satisfied. Here's the thing. You've heard Lacan's famous enunciation that man's desire is always the desire of the other. This is part of how we get to that enunciation. I want what you want because in so wanting, I hope that my desire for you can be satisfied. I'm gonna be whatever you want me to be, the pervert would say. The neurotic has a version of that too. Normal, not because it's good, but because it's very typical. Folks do a lot of things, go way out of their way to try and approximate the desires of others, guessing what they want in order to get their desires for others satisfied. What this ultimately amounts to is if this process goes as it does so often, the child winds up desiring as another. This is why desire is usually such a horrendous experience because fundamentally it's a bodily desire. All desire is from one body to another. Come here, I want you. It's no coincidence that those were the first words uttered on the telephone. Watson, 
Come here, I want you, Edison said into the device. The desire that we have for another person is always an embodied experience. But look at all the disembodied permutations we go through as, in this case, proto-symbolic beings to get that desire met. Throughout our lives, we learn to desire as others in order to satisfy our desire for others. Now, we're moving along here. Don't forget, there's going to be a recording of this. So you can back it up and check it out. And eventually, a transcript will emerge. And we'll figure it all out together. Consider what happens when you step in front of a mirror. Some of us on this call have not shit yet today. There are many things that some of us have done, but others have not. I almost guarantee that everybody in this room has looked at themselves in the mirror at least once today. And I believe that your laptop camera counts. Here we are on Zoom, let's not forget. What the mirror effectively does in this case is it tells you how you look from another person's point of view. It gives you the gaze. But notice what we do with that knowledge, imaginary though it is. We change our clothes. We untuck our shirt. We switch it up because we think we're not attractive enough. The mirror is a dangerous place to be because it fuels our all too human willingness to desire as others. The question we ask in front of the mirror time and time again is, am I desirable? Am I likable? Am I agreeable? Am I worth a shit? This is where that logic emerges. This is how it starts in this pre-edipal imaginary triangle where in order to get our desires for the maternal figure met, we start thinking and imagining as we think they think and imagine. And we're usually quite wrong. Enter the paternal figure. The third step here is the one that is going to give us not the imaginary object, but its negation. This is our no of the father. This is our prohibition. Here is also castration. The paternal function in Lacan, which a lot of people make a big fuss about, not wrongly because it's quite important, is this third move in the process where you effectively square the triangle that was there before. Instead of an imaginary triangle, what's going to emerge now is what I would call a symbolic square. The paternal function is to cut in to this process, this experience, and basically say, hell no. The paternal figure, and it doesn't have to be a dad, 
biological or otherwise. It doesn't have to be male and sex or gender or you name it. It can be performed by anyone. It could be baby Jesus. The paternal figure's job is to introduce a gap, a cut, an opening, some breathing room between the child and the maternal figure. And what the paternal figure says is this. She does not have the phallus. And you, child, cannot be it for her. Now, initially, that feels like a great shitstorm of rejection to both parties. The mother doesn't have the phallus, and you can't be it for her. But in reality, according to Lacan, this cutting in that introduces some space or breathing room, a gap between the child and the maternal figure is crucial because it staves off anxiety. Anxiety is what happens when the paternal function is not performed or performed in a really poor fashion. Because what happens then is that the child never gets to develop a space of their own because they spend their life instead trying to approximate other people's desire. It helps to have somebody show up and be like, fuck that noise, it's over. You can't have her. You don't get to be that for her and she can't have it for herself to, you know, whatever the case may be. But it is a fundamental denial. It is a prohibition against playing that imaginary triangular game any longer. What that paternal function does by cutting in is it negates the imaginary phallus of the stage that preceded it. It says thou shalt not, which is why the no is here as well. And I call it a symbolic square because as you can see, now we have four elements that actually squares this Oedipal experience. This is properly in Lacanian terms out of Freud, Oedipal. This is how Lacan reinterprets the Oedipal issue. Here's that fourth element. To answer your question, this is what was, this is, this pre-Oedipal triangle was what was there before you had this negative phi which was there before you had little a. So if you want some really badass Lacanian algebra to like influence your uncle and win some friends, check this out. Here's what it looks like. Here's where you started. Hold on, I want to do it nice and, nice and amazing if I can. Here's where the thing starts with the imaginary object in this pre-edible triangle. Then the paternal function occurs and this object is negated. This is our cut. What results, what emerges in its place is a signifier of that gap. Little a just marks the space between those two entities. Now you see why I emphasize that definition. It's the minimum irreducible gap or distance between two entities that allows them to remain distinct. Little a is an opening. And this opening is the cause of desire. 
imaginary object, symbolic castration, objet a, human desire. This is how it plays out. These are the stages. Now, if you wanna push it even further, and again, this is not that seminar. We just finished seminar 10. After desire would come anxiety. And after anxiety, once you pass through that, jouissance and the drive. So as they say, the beat goes on. But this is where we find ourselves. And don't forget, this is all in response to your questions. What was there before A? This is what was there. What was there before negative fee? This is what was there. I put it to you. What was there before the imaginary object? Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>